Welcome to Seek Justice, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the nuances of criminal justice. Good morning, Dennis. Well, good morning, Eric. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Today, you told me we could maybe talk about uh, something that I've been wondering a lot about that we see in the news and things about uh, privatization of prisons and uh, when is that a when is that a good thing and or is it always a, is it always a bad thing and what sort of consequences fall out from from the the idea that we could take something run by public servants and give it to a corporation a for profit corporation and have that be anything but just a terrible idea. It seems to me my my sense is that it's a terrible idea, but uh, maybe yeah. there's some silver yeah. linings or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of different uh, aspects to it. You know, a lot of uh, private prisons really enter into the government contract of running prisons as a result of them siting and constructing prisons, and so that as a beginning point, um, if if you're a government uh, entity that has got time constraints uh, and cost constraints for siting, meaning where's it going to go, how do the people in that particular uh, geographic location react to it. You, there's a lot of work that has to be done before you start to construct a prison. If you're not an abolitionist, if you uh, believe that prisons are necessary and if you support a new prison being built for whatever reason, then it's really not a bad option to consider a private uh, corporate uh, assistance with that, if not running it, because they generally can do it quicker and cheaper than what a government can do it. What's interesting, and, and I did some research on this years back, I'd have to check with a colleague of mine uh, who's, I think, the national expert on privatization, Judith Green from uh, New York City. But my research showed that the majority of privatization began with the contractual relationship with a government and a contractor to build. And then it uh, developed into a contract of running it. It was not always the starting point. That certainly isn't always the case. So that's the first part of it. So you you posited that uh, privates, a private corporation can build, let's just start with build, can build a prison faster and cheaper than the government can. Uh, why is that? What, are they, are the incentives more aligned or can they, are they more free to, uh, to shop around for, for outsourcing or what? Yeah, well, it's, first of all, it's all that they do. You know, I mean, they're very good at it. They, they build them and then they run them. So, uh, the architectural designs are, are are completed. They've got different options. They've, uh, right. you know, they're very smart about it. And um, the government, in and of itself, independent of what the specific topic is, as you well know, as everyone in the states knows, takes forever to do anything. Right. And it's just always delays, and those delays are very costly. And so, just from the standpoint of, hey, we're ready to go. Sign a contract today. Siting begins tomorrow. They've got a blueprint for the public input. They've got a blueprint for the architecture, you know, right. and, and, and so it's like and, anything, right? Right, and they're experts. Like you say, that's that's what they right. do, right. and they can come in right. and, and, and do it, whereas people that maybe got 
voted into office or something uh, wouldn't right. really necessarily had to. Well, and the other the other thing to consider, like a, a massive project like this, you've got a primary contractor, and then you've got you know just a long list of subcontractors, and just like when you're building a house or refinishing a house, re renovating a house, there's a contractor and the contractor lines up the, the plumbers and the electricians and somebody has to manage all that. The government is not good at that. Um, the government's not a good contractor. And so you'd end up with a major project director, et cetera. And, and I'm not saying that this is all states, et cetera, et cetera, but there is some uh, benefit to the, to the taxpayers that if the decision has been made to build, uh, you know, and not tackling the question right now of whether building any new prisons is needed, which I personally don't think is the case. Mm -hmm. But moving beyond that, that's that's uh, you, you asked about benefits. That could be one of them. Okay. And as for operating the prison, is it? I imagine the private company tells the tells the state, uh, "Look, we can we can run this for." so many dollars a year and just like any service provider right yeah 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 and it's um it's a similar situation from the beginning point of you know it all depends what we're talking about if you're talking about a maximum security prison or a medium security prison where the uh the prisoners are high risk uh the potential for violence is strong you've got uh all of the officers, in this case the staff, you know, have weapons. That's one thing, and I don't think it's a good idea at all. I don't want to give over the life and death uh, type of uh, responsibility from a government agency, which I don't, you know, trust all that much to begin with, over to a private company that's doing it for profit. Compared to if you run in a minimum security facility, that's that's uh, more about programming mm -hmm. and not so much about risk. But here's the big thing: a private prison is going to run that prison according to a contract with the state, which, if it's spelled out correctly, can be better run than not. And so, it's, it's, when, it's, when I was so, it's potentially more binding to the rules and regulations than if the government were running it itself. Is that a fair statement? Well, yeah, that, that wasn't my point, but that's true. Okay. That's true. In, in other words, and that's a very good point, actually, that if and not that prisons being run by the state don't, aren't covered up with rules and regulations, they right. are. But in this case, you've got a private organization. Maybe, maybe there's more accountability, following. for example. I think there, there could be. You could lose the contract if you... Uh, yes. Right. Whereas the state is never going to lose its own contract. <laughs> but here's the fly in the ointment is that the states often are not good contract managers either. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it gets back to a lot of, yeah, you know, I guess we'd rather have the government do it, but that's not like a real high bar of management and accountability. Right. But it's more what we're used to. So when I worked for uh, Governor uh, Jennifer Granholm here, uh, she set her sights early on in uh, the private prison that we had uh, uh, contracted with under a prior, as a, you know, a Republican administration, which uh, had a lot of problems. And those problems included, for, this, for the juvenile population, a lot of altercations, a lot of attempted suicides, just all sorts of uh, problems. And when I did my assessment of the situation while I certainly recommended that uh, we terminate the contract, my first point was that you couldn't point much of a finger at the contractor 
because the contract itself was loosey-goosey, didn't have a lot of accountability measures, and the accountability measures it has were not being particularly well monitored by the state. Right. And so it's sort of like, you know, if somebody says, I've got this, you know, this, this woman who works for me came to me and reported that she has an employee who's terrible and isn't, you know, isn't performing at all. My first set of questions isn't about the person they're talking about. It's about the supervisor. Right. Exactly. Right. You know, and so it's the same type of thing there. Uh, and then, you know, the, 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 so there's that. And then there's questions about operations altogether, too, that I can talk about if you'd like. Right. Okay. So it's not a clear cut black and white uh, one one is clearly better than the other. There are, like everything in, in life, there are, there's, there's trade-offs here and there. Uh, are there, so you say maybe with a minimum of security prisons, uh, you don't mind so much if those are run by a private corporation? Well, my position is that I don't want a private corporation running any type of a prison facility at all. Okay. If that prison facility includes the potential for, um, gunfire or uh, physical, uh, you know, violence, which, of course, pretty much they all do, minimum right. notwithstanding. Perhaps I could say I have less of a problem with it, but in no way, shape, or form do I support from an ethical standpoint. Right. And I can describe that as um, I don't want the profit motive to make a pretty awful situation even worse. So... Uh, but to tie in what I said earlier about monitoring and contract accountability, if, if a private company were contracted with to run a private minimum security work release center, that the contract spelled out the uh, degree of uh, programming, the type of programming, the credentials of the people providing the programming, uh, the um, staffing levels and the staffing patterns, and was very, very explicit, right. then I'd have uh, less of a ethical problem with it. What I saw when I analyzed and assessed what was happening here, because our contract and our monitoring in Michigan did not include that level of specificity, then the private corporation, of course, realizes, as we all do, that most of the money that goes into operating a facility is in personnel. It's 85% of your costs. Right. So the way that you save money, or if you're the state, the way that you save money or if you're a private corporation, the way that you make more money right. is you cut staffing. So you cut staffing, there's less supervision, the staffing patterns for supervision are uh, neglectful, programming may be cut, the yeah. uh, requirements to be a, an instructor may be cut, and so you've got all sorts of issues of quality. And so those are, those are some of the things uh, that go into it. I've done a, a little bit of work where they uh, uh, were no longer incarcerated per se. Although interestingly, and here's a whole other topic perhaps for today or another day, is that even though they were released, they were still on prisoner status, meaning they actually were still prisoners, but they were on a release status, a work release status. The, the, to make the point and then leave it perhaps is that the state can define the limits of confinement. So a state can say, you're a prisoner until I say you're not, and I'll put you in a medium security facility, and after a while you graduate into a minimum security facility, then after that I'll move you into the community in a halfway house, and then I'll consider paroling you, 
you're on prisoner status the whole time. So you could be, let's say that you're in a supermarket and you run into somebody who you knew who uh, you knew went to prison. Yeah. And uh, you say, hey, man, uh, when did you get out? The guy says, well, I'm not really out, but I am out. So, well, what are you doing here? Well, I'm on a new work release center and he shows you his ankle bracelet. Right. Because yep. he's on GPS monitoring. And he says, I'm still technically a prisoner, but I'm on status. But I got to go. If I'm one minute late, they're going to bust me back and I'm going to go back to the minimum security facility. I'm allowed 45 minutes to run errands after work every day. And I just went to work at this construction company. That's my work release site. So, you know, if that facility is run from a private corporation and those men or, or women are doing well, they're getting the skills they need. The private corporation is doing a good job at connecting them to post-release employment. Right. If they're doing all that, you know, I'd say, well, how does that compare to what the government was doing? Well, then we're back to, well, the government doesn't do a very good job at that. So what's the problem? And then we're just down to the bare bones issue, this ethical issue of whether you want the for-profit motive yeah. to further complicate an already complicated situation. And you can see now why the argument is pretty broad, right? Yeah, and it gets back to that, uh, you know, a new proposed solution doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be better than the current status quo, which in in many situations is pretty crappy already. So, yeah, the I can definitely, uh, whether or not I can articulate it, I can certainly feel the, it feels wrong for a for-profit corporation to to keep humans locked up right uh right just well and, and and because that's and and to administer violence uh if and when necessary it's like you don't want uh you don't want uh microsoft or at&t or somebody uh you know allowed to allowed to to hit you uh, that's just to feel something wrong about about that entity having that having that permission from the state but well so this this uh, point you just made, it, it, and, and again, it gets back to this ethical question, right? Uh, and as a taxpayer, uh, or as an individual, uh, uh, a government entity, whatever, where do you stand on the issue of incarceration in the first place? Um, I, I'll give you an example. You may have read, uh, seen a story recently, which, which I think has been uh, uh, found to be I think untrue that, you know, my favorite basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, was an investor in private prisons. And I read this uh, in the news and I thought, oh, my God, this great African-American leader, you know, uh, just amazing, is investing and wanting to make money off of a mass incarceration system that is racially disparate to people similar to him of color. And it, it since then, I, I think it's been uh, demystified that there's a different Michael Jordan, I think. Yeah. Um, but my reaction to that. Yeah. So even, even though that's, even though that's not true, we can still interrogate your, uh, your emotional of your visceral uh, response to that. Well, and I felt that way for days. I kept thinking about it. I couldn't believe that this, this hero of mine was so disappointing that he was investing in this. Well, so I'm pretty certain that it's untrue. I'll, I'll, I'll have to do a little research here. But but that's the point, though, right? You know, yeah, that's what you're investing in. You're investing in if you're an abolitionist, 
then you're not going to support anybody doing it ever, right? Right. If you believe that it needs to be a limited uh, uh, role of government to incarcerate uh, and treat human beings literally as slaves, right? immune from the 13th Amendment, right? As we discussed in the previous episode. That's what it gets to, see? And so if you set that aside and then you start to talk about the dollars and cents of it, that's a different topic. If you set that aside and you talk about, well, if the performance of a private corporation along the lines of employment and recidivism reduction is so great, well, so maybe it's not so uh, black and white, right? Yeah. So, and another another thing that comes to mind is running prisons, you're Ideally, the objective is to, uh, well, okay, as we've stated before, there are many objectives, but uh, you, we would like it if there were less people in prison as an overall general statement. So uh, if you're running a prison, you want to be rehabilitating and, uh, and get, placing people in jobs and decreasing the recidivism rate. Uh, but if you're financially incentivized to always have a bunch of people in the prison, like if, you're, if you run out of prisoners... They're gonna shut down your prison and, and your contract, and you're gonna, like, that's not that's not how you win, uh, right? If you're right. if if you're, well, if, you, you... if your objective is because once you put profit in there as an alternate objective, uh, then it flips the the incentives for everything else. Like you would like to you would like for this guy that you just released to go and commit a crime and come back and 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 be another one of your numbers, right? Yeah. Well, and and that's a that's a stark uh, example of what someone might think, you know, I, I don't want to, uh, yeah, I guess I'm, I guess I'm be, applying too much of a, uh, rational, uh, you know, if you wrote a computer program to optimize, uh, for prison profits, they would do that. Whereas the actual people running it are probably more, right. more humane and, uh, right. and have, well, have, have loftier goals. They very well are, but, but here's the point. It doesn't matter at the end of the day, how long of a list of positive, reasons they have at the end of the day they're doing it to make money and so in a in a in a sense and this may be more or less hypothetical i don't know i don't want to try to get inside the head of a entrepreneur who's making money off private prisons but are they cheering increased drug addiction are they cheering increased co-occurring disorder with mental health are they you know are they because those are the underlying causes of crime are they happy to see that there's more unwed mothers which is one of the predictors of imprisonment. I mean, where do you, where does this go? And somebody who's a corporate honcho could be so insulted and, you know, just absolutely, you know, angry as he could be or she could be about me ascribing those types of motives. But at the end of the day, you can imagine the conversation of, of, so if you don't support those things, then so do you want, or do you really want to work yourself out of a job? Right, exactly. You really want, you know, and so, it's one thing to have a government do it and perhaps even do it poorly as part of government responsibility. It's another thing altogether to throw the profit uh, motive in there, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of the, um, the, the argument with, uh, with privatized healthcare is, uh, like, your doctor makes more money the more times you have to go in and, and, and see her to get, and to get more drugs and stuff. It's not, like, if you... If you get cured and you get well and you never go back to the doctor again, that's not good for the doctor, right? Right. Uh, so right. it's right. It, the the incentives are totally flipped there, and it seems to be pretty yeah. parallel with the with the privatized prisons as well. Yeah, yeah. And we could, you know, take us very quickly if we 
looked at these these two interrelated issues that people have done an awful lot of work, very, very good work. Judith Green, I mentioned, is one of them. And if she were on the call now, I mean, she could dispel probably half the stuff we said and said, well, that's less true than not or whatever. Uh, and she studied this enormously. The other issue, though, and going back to the, the myth, uh, I, I suppose, about this Michael Jordan thing, is that uh, uh, the issue of racial disparity. So are you supporting that? Um, and uh, Mark Maurer uh, from the Sentencing Project has written uh, some amazing articles and books about racial disparity. And when you look at the issue of privatization through the lens of racial disparity, it becomes an even more difficult uh, thing to support because you are, in fact, supporting a system where uh, persons of color, uh, black, Latino uh, yep. primarily, are being treated and locked up more frequently for lesser crimes for longer periods of time. And if you're making money off that, uh, then, you know, shame on you. You know, that's a different thing than the government and its lack of capability and competency to do anything about that, which we've talked a lot about. It's a whole different thing when you're dealing with a private company. And could you sue a private company for racial disparity? If could you do a class action suit against private corporations? Yeah, you know, I, 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 if you could, they probably would have. Yeah, but, I know. imagine. I imagine they would. Their lawyers would just say, uh, "Hey, man, it's the it's the government and the courts that are convicting and sentencing these these people. We just yeah. we're just keeping them in yeah. the box." Yeah, we're a hotel. Right, we're a hotel. We man the front desk. We don't know who's coming. We don't know who's going. We're contracted for five hundred beds at forty five dollars a day. And uh, we have a, uh, the contracts usually have a, a, a minimum bed payment that could be that regardless of how many prisoners are there, if it were me, I would have this in my contract to say, if you dip below a certain number of beds, you still got to pay for them. Right. Because we can't operate a facility with less than 75% uh, guaranteed bed capacity. You know, and, and in that case, boy, now you get the argument where the state says, well, hell, we're already paying. We don't send another exactly. Right? We don't send another hundred guys there, right? We yeah. don't send another hundred guys there. We're going to end up increasing the per diem from forty-five a day to sixty-five a day. We have a statute that doesn't allow that. An appropriation doesn't allow that. We got to find another hundred guys, or whatever, and then you got to transfer them from a public prison into a private prison, or you know, all very hypothetical, of course. But if you're running a system, you say, well, we've got these minimum security guys that are you know, the, the parole board is going to review them in a month. You know, uh, we could de we could delay that parole review date right, for a couple, three months and then meet our contract quota. Who knows oh, what goes on? Right. Who knows what goes on? Right. I mean, I've worked in the in the government behind closed doors. These conversations are are, are crazy. They're just crazy to, to consider. So, you know, I, I uh, we could return to the subject after I do a little bit of work looking at Judy's stuff. Uh, but it's um, it's uh, it's it's a bad situation. Very complicated. I would rather there be problems because of incompetent governments than there be problems because of competent, incentivized private corporations. Like if, okay. like the, the racial disparity, for example. Uh, if I know that that whoever's running the the, the prison is cl clearly incentivized to keep up those numbers, uh, that bothers me way more than uh, someone that's supposed to be keeping those numbers down but it's just just bad at it right okay so so with that in mind here's a here's a here's a here's a little question a little role play so given that position 
uh, we're in a state that's got about 44,000 prison beds. And let's say that a private contractor wants to run a residential facility with 100 beds. So 44,000 prisoners, 100 beds, which of course means that the numbers are not, uh, 100 beds isn't gonna make much of a difference at all in those grand numbers. But the facts are, in this hypothetical situation, that when the state runs a halfway house, 75% of the men fail and return to prison and do another three years at uh, you know, $12,000, $15,000, $20,000 a year. And of the 25% who don't go back to prison, they have an employment rate of about 10%. And a private uh, entity uh, can be contracted with that has a track record of a 35% uh, failure rate. And of the people that do not return to prison, 75% of them are getting jobs. Those jobs are bringing in taxes to the community. They are uh, uh, living better lives, a great set of personal stories. And I can say to you, there's no way on God's green earth that the government is ever gonna be able to run a program as successful as that private prison. Do you still take the position? Wow, that's tough. Okay. Yeah, the, uh, hey, yeah, when you when you put numbers to it like that, it. Uh... And let's say that you say, well, you know, I wanna talk to the, let me talk to the guy that runs the place that's making the money off of it. And uh, you, you see him and he's a, a former pastor and uh, uh, you know, a, a leader in his uh, community. And he says, you know, uh, this is my way of fighting mass incarceration in dealing with the fact that the system is racially disparate. I celebrate the fact that of the, the fact that 65% of all the men that come into my facility are black and brown men. And I, as a black man, am so proud that those men return to prison half as frequently are twice as successful in the outcome. This is my way to fight that. And to tell you God's honest truth, I'm not making that much money on it. What I do is I plow that money back into better facilities and better programming. Now, see? Uh-huh. Not so easy. So, not so easy. Not yeah, so easy. Yeah, and, exactly. From the, you know, from the outside, speaking in generalizations, sure, it's easy to draw the line and say, uh, no, no prison should be private. But when you go into specifics like that, and I mean, that was hypothetical, but it certainly seems like it could happen. Uh, yeah, it's uh, not clear cut at all. Yeah. And, you know, to, to, to put myself in that awkward position that I put you in, my response would be, yeah, I know that's those are good arguments as to why uh, one might support privatization. But my bottom line is this. I don't support imprisonment. I don't support mass incarceration. I think prison should be reserved for only the folks that have proven uh, violence and, and threats. And for them, you know, I, I support long prison terms. That's my personal view. Yep. Therefore, I can't support this even though that's the case. I would, I will spend my time to push the government's accountability and competency so that they do a better job and uh, elicit political support to reduce mass incarceration. I wanna, I wanna work that way. So, you know, I could see how, you know how I would react to that kind of inquiry. Maybe the maybe the the privatized the privatized examples that are working are not the ones you you initially go after. You go after the ones that that aren't working. But uh, but yeah, uh, ideally you you have to fall back on the, those ideals that you uh, 
both we shouldn't have so many people in prison and also it really should not be privatized when it uh, when they do have to be right so right right well so here's another another uh uh kind of a tentacle of this imbroglio uh so let's not talk about private for-profit corporations let's talk about non-profit corporations okay right? where there's not a profit motive um and you look at the nonprofit books and you see of course there's no bonuses and there's no profit per se and the money that they bring in compared to what their costs are they're trying to control costs like any good nonprofit would and in any given year they have more money because they've saved money and they may have 10 20 30 40 50 100 thousand dollars more coming into what they spent well what do they do with that money well they give all their staff raises and and the head of the nonprofit is on an incentive program and the more money he or she saves the higher his or her salary will be the next year so they start their nonprofit they're making 60 70 thousand dollars a year whatever hypothetical sure. and then after two or three years they're making 85 and then they're making a hundred and pretty soon they're getting really good at cutting costs how personnel right right how hiring people that are you know qualified but perhaps not expert maybe less education right maybe they don't pay as good of benefits maybe they cut the staffing patterns sound familiar yep and at the end of it they're incentivized because they're gonna personally make more money exactly it's not profit for the for the company it's profit for the individuals in the company when right and so when the and, and I've been working with nonprofit residential programs my whole career and supported them and contracted with them and when I look at the books and I see that their director is you know in a state that like Michigan where a very good salary here for a nonprofit would be eighty eighty five thousand dollars a year they're bringing a hundred and twenty a hundred thirty thousand dollars yeah I start to have the same kind of conniptions you know as to as to where it goes none of that happens in the government you know, you can you can be the contract monitor over a residential program, and those residential programs can be incentivized to a certain degree. It's not going to benefit you personally, right? You know, where you're not, you know, you're going to get a raise when you're eligible for a raise because you're a civil servant. You're going to make money up. You're going to get praise and kudos for doing a good job, right. but it's not a financial incentive, you know. And so these are complicated things. You know, I think that, you know, people got to draw the line in the sand and, and, and decide where they stand on how much incarceration is appropriate and uh, what are the specifics of that, what types of people, length of stays, et cetera. And you draw that line and then it's a little easier to say, well, if it's on this side, then it's I, I support it. If it's on the other side, I don't. And, and this does get into this nonprofit structure, right? The whole world of nonprofits. And believe me, I would never support the reduction or elimination of nonprofits doing this work, you know, I mean, I'm running a nonprofit myself. So, you know, somebody could say, well, what are you doing? Right. How are you making your money? You're consulting uh, across the United States. Well, what happens if this problem goes away? You know, you right. won't have a job. Well, I'll tell you right now, I'd love to work myself out of a job. In fact, sure. uh, you know, it, the, the fact is, is that because I've got to help government agencies become more competent, and the success I've had with that is extraordinarily limited. Right. It 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 it, it gives rise to you know the, the sense and the logic of my profession more than it does the ethical nature of you know 
how I take my money or you know how I make my money. But you know, it's uh, I don't think we've ever had a an episode here where we don't end up just scratching our heads and saying, <laughs> "Good Lord, it's complicated." You you know, right? It's just not it's just not straight up sometimes. Well, I mean, and I think in this in this episode we've we've shown that it's although ideally it is sort of black and white that privatization of prisons is always bad in general, but there are situations like you say how quickly the prison can get built uh and how uh it gets back to that sort of charismatic leader idea of if you had the CEO of a of a of a corporation that was really passionate about this and not so uh, profit driven and really could make a change in the community in a more efficient way than the than the than the government is able to, that's not entirely you you can't say well that's bad because of because of the structure right uh, so, right. so. It, I think we've I think we've concluded or at least i'm taking away from this that uh it's it's certainly not black and white but that in the ideal world yes we would have very minimal uh prisons uh yeah publicly publicly yeah run. yeah well it'd be interesting to see if um you know this michael jordan myth which was pretty well publicized uh i, I saw it uh, across my uh my google alert you know so it, and right. it was high profile and what the reaction was and the reviews and the comments were and how much they elucidate these types of discussions that we had today and some of these arguments today, because now we're not talking about some unknown corporate guy behind a desk. We're talking about, you know, at least for a couple of days that it was out there, right. Michael Jordan, for God's sake, you know, because there's a lot, I'm sure there's a lot of, uh, a lot of print uh, out there uh, about that. I'd also like to uh, think about for a future is, um, getting some interaction with uh, Judith Green and uh, Mark Maurer uh, on this um, and yeah. uh, see what uh, see what they might uh, add, add add to the discussion yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to them and see uh, if they'd like to participate I think it just occurred to me that um, we're you know looking in, looking into the, into the future and what technology is doing there's a lot of risk of jobs being lost to automation to to AI to computers, uh, and it's not just factory jobs or trucker jobs or uh, or Uber drivers. It's um, there's lots of things like accountants and lawyers and doctors and things are could potentially uh, computers could potentially do that better. And I want to I want to talk about what's are there any technological innovations in in prisons that can maybe cut costs and maybe you don't need quite as many personnel if you have, I don't know, a fingerprint scanner when they go out, when the prisoners go out for, uh, for, for time outside or something like that. Are there any, um, are there any new developments beyond, you know, now that we, beyond like the, the ankle bracelet and GPS? That was, that was obviously a huge, a huge thing. Yeah. Well, and that's, that, in fact, would be the first place to start because the it's an example of both a technological advancement that had a benefit in that now we knew uh, at any given moment where a particular prisoner was. Let's say we're still on the example of privatization. Right. The person's on uh, prisoner status, but they're in a work release center. They've got a bracelet on, and in the technology allows you to track and know in real time exactly where that prisoner is, and so it boosted the uh, motivation and the comfort level with having more people 
right. on bracelets, more people in work release. But on the other hand, then you end up uh, expanding the use of bracelets, not a hundred men, but a thousand men. And there's so many that you're not tracking them anymore in the general public's view of, oh, that's good. They know where they are. Well, yeah, you know where they are after the fact. Yeah. You don't have enough personnel to be watching screens with a thousand prisoners in their movement. But if something happens, you know where they were. Exactly. If you know, if, if, it, if a murder happened last night uh, right. in 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 the back alley on Fifth Street, you can go and see if any of your of your known right. Uh, right. Right. Fe- felons right. were there. Right. Yeah. Or or you know, in the the technology allows that when they go outside a certain space, right. Then th- there's an alarm, you know, et cetera. But you know, to give an example of in fact a prisoner that I spoke to was talking to me. It was a prisoner, former prisoner, I can't remember which, and, and he said, yeah, electronic monitoring, that's 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 quite the innovation. And uh, I used to buy my drugs from a guy who was on uh, house arrest and electronic monitoring, and he couldn't leave his apartment. So I just went to his house and bought my drugs. Right. Yeah. You know, and so there, there's limits. When, when we consider technological advancements inside a prison, it has a lot to do with similar uh, ability to locate and know where they are and architectural uh, improvements, not exactly artificial intelligence, but knowing that there's ways to uh, construct a prison where it's safer and easier to monitor, where you've got more uh, straight line sight at what is happening. And right. the, back in the day when, when I started this work, I'd go into prison and look like what you would recognize on TV is, you know, cells lined up, et cetera. But the newer prisons were built as like a hub in the center with four tentacles of uh, of long, yeah. narrower uh, bays where people slept. And if you're, you're in the hub and you can see straight line sight all the way to the end of the, of the, of the unit. And at the same time, they have cameras situated where any dead space is viewed on a camera. Right. And you've got a, in, uh, anybody who comes in is monitor, anybody who goes out, the uh, uh, improvements in the ability to uh, discover uh, weapons coming into the prison, drugs coming into prison, et cetera. I mean, we still rely on a lot of, you know, old school uh, tactics, if you will, of pat downs and, and, and dogs, dogs and, yeah. and whatnot if necessary. But there's been some technological advancements uh, along those lines. The other uh, uh, part of it that, that a little bit connected to what you're asking is, you know, we are now in an era where if you don't have technological skills, you are going to suffer. You know, uh, you're not going to know where to go. You're not going to know how to get there. Everything is electronic. Yep. I mean, when's the last time you had a folded map in your hand, right? Uh, you know, and so prisoners, particularly longer-term prisoners, who went into the prison system before those advancements oh, were made, yeah. get out of prison and they have no idea. I had a, a, a man who was who told me that he was literally frozen at a crosswalk in downtown Charlotte, North Carolina, because he didn't know what the lights meant. There were symbols, and it was digital, and he didn't know what it meant anymore. You know, it, it used to be it was pretty simple. Yeah. Green light go, red light stop. Well, yeah. in some places, green means you can walk. And so you've got these he, – he came into my office in a cold sweat. Huh. been locked up for 24 years. He said, I didn't – I was frozen. I, I couldn't make it – I didn't know how to cross the street. Hmm. You know, and, and take that to the, the next uh, level where you've got guys who've never used cell phones – you know, sure, sure. They understand all this stuff, and so technology has some interplay there. Well, in a prison, most prisons, many, many, many. Prisons, you're not going to pass out cell phones to, te- to no. teach them how to use them. Well, you're not going to have access to a computer, right? And yet, you know, the research on, uh, uh, you know, when people get their GEDs, you know, there's a, 
instead of going to high school, they get a, a qualified high school completion uh, GED. And the most important uh, variables or components of a GED that are proven to help uh, former prisoners, probably general public as well, is reading skills, math skills. And the third one is the ability to use technology in a high-tech world, Wow! being able to find what you need. Well, if that's the third most important component and you're in a prison that you're not allowed to have access to a computer, how are you going to get that done, right? Yeah. And so it's, it's I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but it's complicated. Right? <laughs> you know, it just gets into this whole, whole other uh, set of issues. Now, it, it, I wouldn't be surprised, frankly, if we dug into this a little bit, and Judy uh, might help with this, as to whether or not a private run prison actually has a much better track record and ability to connect with technology, both in terms of utilization of that technology to improve efficiency and also the ability to connect technology to the prisoner because they may not be working under the same set of rules. So that, that's, that, that's an open-ended question. And if, they, if, 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 if we see that it's true, then we're back to that question. So how much do you still not support privatization? Exactly. If they're able to, uh, you know, blow the state out of the water when it comes to preparing prisoners for living in a high-tech world, uh, which uh, ends up reducing the stress of being a former prisoner, which is a stress that never leaves them for years. It's every minute. It's every day, right? Right. If you can reduce that stress and increase their comfort level so that they have a better faith in themselves and their ability to prosper, anything you can do to do that is good. And so if a private company does that better, uh, holy cow. Right? Yeah. Now, now where do we stand, right? And so uh, Judy could help us understand this a little bit better, but but these are, you know, these are some other issues to think about. It's a good question. Okay. Two thoughts I had when, when you were saying that is uh, it's uh, with the whole ankle bracelet thing, it's very much a, a I mean, in all of prison, it's a total uh, lack of privacy uh, because p- people know where you are all the time. And uh, it amuses me to think that uh, we're all basically wearing ankle bracelets ourselves with our with our smartphones yeah. that, that, yeah, that's right. that Google knows where we are at all times. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and consider this, that if you're, uh, uh, let's say that you're a company that operates uh, GPS monitoring systems, ankle bracelets, et cetera, um, and you've got a decent profit uh, because they're, very, they're quite profitable. Uh, and I uh, was uh, friends of a, a colleague of mine that uh, ran one of these uh, outfits and um, – you know, he made a lot of money, and he uh, provided a lot of money uh, to politicians. Right. And those politicians could create laws, and they did, that said, you know, we're going to expand the use of ankle bracelets. Yep. And uh, we don't want them on the people that we're afraid of. Uh, we want them on the people that we're mad at. Okay. And uh, so we, we go from 100 to 1,000. Well, the company then has a profit margin that skyrockets. The politician gets a much bigger donation. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, this private company had boat cruises and overseas trips and golf outings and all sorts of things. And every time it was full of people that were politicians and judges who had to sentence people and could say, I want them on GPS, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it goes in a lot of directions. It's pretty complicated. Okay. Well, thanks for this discussion. 
And just reminding everybody that the things we spoke about can be found on our website at seekjustice.fm, where we'll have show notes and links to people that we've talked about and technologies and things. And we'll talk to you next time, Dennis. All right. Thanks, man. Enjoyed it. Have a good day. All right. You too. Next week on Seek Justice, we discuss unemployment, both before and after prison. If you've got <clears throat> approaching 50% of the people who, uh, prior to prison, uh, aren't uh, employed, then imagine what it's like after, right? So now the numbers shoot up to about 55% of the people who are post-release report no income. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've just heard, you can support us by telling a friend or sharing us on social media. All of our episodes can be found on our website, seekjustice.fm. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we can be reached at seekjusticefm at gmail.com or via our Twitter account at seekjusticefm. See you next week.